anyway, we're going to share with you tonight uh, something you know about cheese and the waiting six hours. Okay, it would have been really good last time, but I didn't have it in my hands at that time, and I do now, and I developed something with it. So I'm going to share that with you. It's an article we're working on now for Cautious Magazine based upon uh, the OU's uh, investigation. Very, very interesting material. You might want to get a pen and with, or a piece, of, a piece of paper for a little later. It would be very, very helpful to you. Now, I want to just comment on some of the things that are going on right now. On the one hand, things are improving in terms of the coronavirus and people getting back to shul, and that's sort of a, pl a big plus, and many people experience a, a special thrill going back to the shul, again, for, for Yomtev. Uh, some people davened outside in the tent, and some people davened inside in the shul, but basically, people were back with their old people that they know and the Rabbonim, and it was a certain, an experience for many people, very, very special experience. On the other hand, right now, in the throes of uh, a major problem that's going on in America over uh, an issue that I think everybody knows about, and there's, there's, there, there are protests, and uh, worse than that, and there's a lot of anti-Semitic uh, things going on as well. So it's a, it's a time to be especially careful and concerned. And in, in the, in the bare minimum, it's a responsibility that we all have to daven for the safety of all of Jewish people and for the and for shalom and the peace in the world, which is an extreme time. Uh, and, and things have gotten out to, uh, to such an extent out of control that we don't know what the next step will be. And therefore, all of us should be careful wherever we live and also to daven for the safety of the world uh, as a whole, and of course for the Jewish people uh, in particular. Uh, as far as going back to show the uh, the things that happen, you know, in real life, when one can prepare, one could think, one could say, one could promise, but when real life comes, things change. So when people see their old friends again. And uh, they, they're feeling fine. How are you doing? Everyone's fine. Baruch Hashem. It, it, sometimes it, 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 could, it could put us back to where we were before coronavirus. One of the things that HaKadosh Baruch Hu wanted to teach us by taking us out of that environment was that how much people do mean to us, but on the other hand, how much we are individuals as well as part of society. And when we go back to shul, we have to go back with the proper cover to cover. And all the articles you've seen and all the advertisements, all the Gedolim signing this and that, you've, I've, you've read it, you must have seen it, where they begged us to go back to shul in a different way than we were conducting ourselves before. People were macabre themselves not to speak during davening and not to speak in the shul, the words that they're not appropriate for shul and, and not and being, you know, hey, proper cover to the shul. All of us, the people signed the signed things, their names, promised, and, 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 and well, they heard the drushes. Well, now is the time. <laughs> right now, the first time, if you feel that first across the way, and they're friends of yours, you want to reach out and say, schmooze a thistle. You know, even if, I don't know what standards you have, whether you do with a, with a, a mask or you, you keep a distance or you don't do anything. But whatever your standards are, it's still the show. So uh, people have to work on that. And unfortunately, I don't think that that's uh, embedded in us yet. And uh, we don't want to go for another little trip outside of the show. So everyone has to do their best 
you know, to to to, 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 uh, to, to carry the burden and and to, and act properly in the shul. And everybody knows what they what I mean. Uh, I want to go on now to a, a line. I'm going to say something. People are going to say, "Where in the world are you getting this from?" Don't ask questions. I got it. I'm giving it to you. You want it? You don't want it? Fine. There was a a, a black fellow by the name of Booker T. Washington, and he was a slave, and he got freed. And here's one thing that he said, which I it, it struck me as extremely appropriate for, excuse me, after Shulis. He said that when they were freed, the first thing that many of them thought of was education, because they always were deprived of education. And they, they were very desirous. Most of them couldn't read a word, and uh, even a letter. And so they, uh, it was, they were very desirous of getting an education. And here's what the man said. It's a, it's a strong line. He said, the great ambition of the older people was to try to learn to read the Bible before they died. A non-Jewish person, black people, finally freed, and what's their dream? That they should be able to read the Bible. Old people, and he talks about people who were 50 to 75 and that up, and going back, going to school, just to be able to read the Bible. If that's what a non-Jewish person was a slave his whole life, if that's what's on his brain, that before he dies, he must read the Bible, what should a Jewish person who knows the importance, who knows the importance of, a, of, of all that Torah means to us, what should a Jewish person be thinking when, when, he, uh, when, when, he, when he hears that? What should he be thinking after Shavuos? Kabbalah the Torah? How, how much we should want to learn the whole Torah while we're on this earth. On this earth. I thought it was just a, a strong statement, and I thought it was just interesting to share with you. Now, I'm going to uh, take a, give you a couple of uh, highlights from... Rabbi Gordimer, who printed an article, it was in the uh, it, it, it was in the uh, the Ated, I believe, this past week. I assume it was this past week. In any event, <laughs> the at the beep, the the in the article he talks at least he talks about looking back in in retrospect at uh, COVID nineteen. Well, there are a few points I wanted to stress. The rest of it I, I can leave to you to see yourself. It's an interesting article. But he talked about how many people are going to become Monday morning quarterbacks and try to, you know, figure out who was at fault and what happened, and, you know, all that kind of business. That's really not appropriate, Sarah. We're supposed to be thinking about what, what it means for us, what Hashem did to us, what Hashem wants us to do. What does HaKadosh Baruch Hu want from us? So he points out that everything, of course, that transpires is from HaKadosh Baruch Hu. It's not due to political maneuvering, clever opportunists, or foolish mistakes. It, but but that, that does not absolve people who, who did things that were wrong, but that's not our concentration. Our concentration should be on what we have to do. 
he said that in the in the non-Jewish world, or let's say in in, in the non-observant or non-observant Jewish world, they decided right away they're not going to have camps. Most of them just closed up to the camps. But in the Jewish world, this is a major issue. I don't know what's going to happen in the end. Day camps, regular camps, it's it's a big issue. Some camps did open. Some things did open already. Are going to open next week. But still, in all. It, it, it is a big issue. Why is it a big issue? Because to us, camp isn't just a place to play. For us, camp is, it, 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 it's, it increases their Yiddishkeit and impacts on them in, in, in special ways that it couldn't do maybe in the city. It's a priceless experience. Here's a quote from Rabbi Gordimer. For Torah Jews, camp is a ruchnius infusion for their children and is thus precious and cherished. Such things are not easily forfeited. And if they can be attained safely, we will pursue them. Interesting, right? He said that another thing he's, he pointed out, which was very, very interesting, is when the founding fathers of contemporary American Torah, American Torah Jewry immigrated to America, when the, the religious people came in the 1950s, late 40s and 50s, before they came from Europe, the first thing they did was to establish, not to establish the major shuls, of their current communities. Rabbi Yosef Breuer, the major Hasidic Rebbe's, and the, the Gedol Elita in Poland, and all the other Torah Manhagen, first established most those chinos before building their kehilas and the main shuls. In my, my neighborhood of Washington Heights, it's not mine, it's Rabbi Gordimer uh, speaking, Rabbi Breuer led a minion in his apartment, and his kehila then purchased an old dance studio to convert it into a mukum tefillah rather than focusing on constructing the current Kahala Das Yeshurin Shul edifice. In other words, he didn't want to build a big building. As putting energy into building the yeshiva, he wanted the yeshiva first. Yeshiva Shamshin Mephorel Hirsch. That's what he wanted to create first. So we're really interested in our Torah institutions getting back. That's important to us. And part of that, it includes also this thing with the camps. Number three, another point. Uh, he said that Although the lockdowns have been extremely challenging for everyone, my observation is that those who maintained a daily structure fared much better than those who lacked a real schedule. And he talks about that, which is very, very interesting, how, how, how people who conduct themselves regularly with a shear, with uh, learning, with dobbing at the same time, and, 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 and did things in an organized fashion, got through the whole thing much better. Number four, he says that COVID-19 is transmitted easily simply by breathing because the majority of those who carry it are asymptomatic. The virus fools people who become exposed to and contract COVID-19 without the foggiest idea that they're in the crosshairs and are being infected. Unlike other diseases regarding which people can sense the danger and are innately cautious, Due to clear symptoms and visible indicators of the disease's presence, coronavirus is the invisible enemy, spreading like wildfire as people who appear perfectly fine and interact normally are in fact impair imparting the virus to everyone in their midst without anyone realizing it. That's a thing that he wants us to understand. Some people do not accept things unless they can see them with the naked eye. These people are in denial of that which is beyond their limited human senses. 
that is one of the big lessons of coronavirus. You can't see it. You don't know it. You have to believe in it. Something you can't see, you have to believe in, that gives a person pause to think about other things that you can't see, but you have to believe in them and know that they're there. Those were a few ideas I saw in Rabbi Gordon's article, which are so interesting. I want to share with you now an update. If you knew this, fine. If you didn't know it, you didn't know it. But uh, the Fairways uh, bakeries currently are not certified. Uh, that goes for the Kavkei took off their Hashkocha, and Mahajan Kashas, Rabbi Avram Marmestein, took off his Hashkocha. Basically, the company was, uh, it seems that uh, the village supermarkets, it's a, with a ShopRite uh, company, uh, had became the new owners of Fairways, and they uh, decided that they didn't want at the, at the present time to pursue only kosher. So they're getting products from, from vendors that are not kosher and selling them. And uh, it may have come back sometime in the future, in the near future, that they will be kosher certified. But currently, Fair, Fairways bakeries in a whole bunch of uh, locations, I can't go through them all, but some of the stores um, may, you know, may, may still be kosher, technically. The Fairways in Georgetown is now Foodway, and that it is selling kosher products. Take a look now. If you don't see a kosher sign there, it's no longer kosher certified. Um, also point out to you that Dorot Farms carrots are from Israel. Dorot Farms carrots are from Israel, and they're being sold in shop rights and other places as well. Another thing is that uh, it was a uh, product called Egg in a Cup. This is uh, a, a product that uh, that was it has a cup K, but it says on it DE, and actually it is dairy. It has dairy ingredients. It has cream and and feta cheese. So that's a mislabeled that you should know about. Egg in a cup is really dairy. I want to read a little bit to you from an article that came out. Uh, it's an extension of the material we've discussed before, but there are a few people being quoted and, and how they're being quoted. It's very interesting to see where this whole thing is going with the visitations over the Zoom and uh, Skype that the conscious agencies are doing with telephones and uh, handheld computers as opposed to going to actual visits to plants. There, there is a certain amount of visiting that, that they do on-site, where they actually do go in, and there's a certain amount of things they're not going to produce during coronavirus, and some things they're dropping in the Hushkochas. It's all up in the air, and, some, and we've had a number of items that I've mentioned, or I haven't mentioned them here, but some in my Kashos Monthly, that they no longer kosher certified, at least during coronavirus. But what... Um, what I wanted you to hear is a little bit about how this is working out, what the things that they're doing on this visitation through the um, visitation through the uh, telephone, uh, using or the internet, using Zoom or or these handheld telephones. But basically, they're standing over here, and they're telling the person in the plant, "Please take this over here. Please take it over there. Show me this. Show me that." I spoke. Uh, recently with one mashkiach, and he, uh, he told me that the state, uh, he's in, in New Jersey, he said in the state uh, they send around 
always somebody from the uh, health department to check on various things. They want to check on um, on the temperatures. They want to check in the kitchen, the cleanliness. They have the certain inspections. And then they usually come on, I assume, unannounced, and they make these inspections. And everybody knows about, like you have, just like you see in the restaurants have these inspections, so also the, uh, the, all the facilities have these inspections. So he was telling me that today they don't go in. They only do it with Zoom and Skype. That's how they do the inspections for the health department for the state of New Jersey. I assume it's the same in, in most areas. They're not making real visitations right now. And he explained to me that is how it works and that they do check quite a bit of things. They're checking the temperature of the refrigerator. They're checking the kitchen. They, they, they take it around and they show them. They told me a line, and it's stuck in my brain. And it's an important line to, 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 to tell you, but you'll never see it in writing. I don't know if I can write it but you'll never see it in writing any one of these articles about coronavirus. Again, I'm telling it to you. He told it to me, Messiah Lafitte Tumo, and I'm sure you can believe it, but you probably will never see it in writing, so you'll hear it here now. And that is, he said, it's much easier to pass. Much easier to pass the, uh, the, the inspection during coronavirus. Understood? Everybody got it? You got the message? It's much easier to pass during coronavirus. So uh, that leads us to the, the next questions, which we're not going to ask here. Okay. Uh, understood. So let me explain to you a little bit about what the conscious agencies are saying about the, uh, these inspections that are taking place with Zoom and Skype. Cuff, the Cuff K, Rabbi Rosenbaum, said, I'm not going to put my mashkichim on the plane. Some places don't let you fly. So he's going to have to use this method. Instead, he has uh, his team of approximately 150 mashkichim now conduct their checks with Zoom or Skype. Rav Moshe Elephant from the OU said, the person who is doing the inspection knows the factory because he's been visiting the facility for a while. Uh, that's for most of the things. But uh, we, we heard that uh, the OU, in one of the OU publications, in Dapa Kashras, Rabbi Grunberg, Mati Grunberg, who does the work for the OU in China, or most of the work for there, said that they also do initial inspections, first-time inspections, using this, this uh, handheld device without actually going there. All told, the OU has... 10,000 facilities across 50 states and 100 countries. That's a big job for right now, 100 countries. Approximately a quarter of those facilities are now being checked virtually, Rabbi Elephant said. A quarter of them. Others are still being examined in person. And I assume a certain number of them they're hoping to get too soon. Some smaller kosher certifications agencies have also gone vigil, and uh, that's understandable. One of the big things that wasn't available, and I think you know about that, is that cream cheese, kosher cream cheese, was, uh, was something that uh, was very scarce during coronavirus. 
OU said, this is interesting, remember, this is coronavirus, the OU typically gives its approval for up to 500 new companies each year, the Rabbi Elephant, and he said that it remained at the same level despite COVID-19 outbreak, which means that we request all sorts of documentation about ingredients that they're receiving, and they're showing us invoices so we can determine that they're all kosher. Anyway, he has also a elephant, which is very true. Our rabbis have learned a lot of technology and accounting during this crisis. So uh, basically, they, they are, uh, he said, uh, Rabbi Rosenbaum said that the checks can last from one to three hours. We heard that before from other people, depending on the size of the facility. Similarly, some locations are screened once or twice a month, while others are inspected every eight weeks, he added. So that gives you an idea of how often they're coming around. They're doing this even with the Skype. And the, okay. Rabbi Elephant said uh, that the fear that they're going to have, that they're going to have to replace the OU on a lot of processes, it didn't happen because when the warehouses reopened, a lot of warehouses are open even if the stores aren't open, but warehouses are open, so then they were able to have sent in-person checking to make sure that the, uh, and in addition to the virtual checking with the, uh, with the handheld machine, they actually had a lot of on-site visits in the warehouses. We explained to them, Rabbi Elephant said, that if there was, they're going to insist that we can't visit, then we can't continue the program. Every time we've been successful in making it work. So it seems that we were fortunate because we could have had a, a, big, a, a big problem in terms of the amount of kosher products that would have been available. Uh, there's a, a lot of interesting things here, but one, the last thing is very important. The OU says that they plan to use virtual checks to enhance its in-person inspections. So we're going to counterbalance the, in, the visiting with this handheld thing. So it's, it's now because it made it into the, the protocol of the cautious agencies. They said we've discovered that they're good tools. There's a silver lining in everything. And uh, but Rabbi Rosenbaum pointed out that they never they are never employed in critical kosher situations, but they're only just for these things that maybe don't need as much supervision. So that gives you a little bit of an idea. I, I found it interesting. I hope you found a little a few points there of interest. I have something here, but I think I, I think I would just say it in like about one sentence. There's an interesting article that I read. 13 common foods that could secretly contain insects. I'm not going to go into the details, but I'll just give you the names of the items. And I, I think it's important to hear it, not because you should be extremely worried, but because you should be aware that you might find something under certain circumstances. Although I can tell you in some of them, you'll never find it. Uh, now let's, you know what? Some of it will be difficult for some of our people to listen to, so I'm going to skip it. But what, one of the things that he mentioned here, and they mentioned the 13 products that could have uh, insects in them, which I thought was very interesting, is, I mean, of course, they had like frozen broccoli and stuff like that, but it's not understandable. But, and, I, and they mentioned mushrooms and canned mushrooms, and they mentioned canned tomatoes, but this one was interesting. They mentioned that... Uh, 
fruit juices. And that's, that's very important because it was this whole thing about, um, you know, we had with the orange juice, if you remember. Orange juice was a problem. Some people stopped using it because of insects in it. Others said it was not. There were only small pieces. Maybe you can't see them in their bottle and then this and that. But what's important is that the FDA allows quite a, few, a number in these fruit juices, and uh, it, it's, it's definitely there. The question is, is halakhically mutter or not? Years ago, when I was in yeshiva, or in the early early days with Rabbi Yashazim, Rabbi Yashazim, and was my Rebbe for 30 years, Zimmerman told us, it was not easy for us to hear it, so I'm only going to say it briefly to you. <laughs> he, he explained to us that when you hear peanuts, they're making a peanut in the grinding machine. They're making peanuts, or they're making tomato. They're making uh, ketchup. You could uh, he, he described a little bit about how you would know that there were insects in the, in there at that time, and these bigger than insects, small rodents that could be still in there. And and uh, all of us, all the years, have been eating these things. Not just one thing. All the food that we eat, kimat, could have insects in it. But that doesn't mean that we can't eat it. And we don't have to worry about, is it there? Isn't it there? Is it bottle? Is not bottle? Well, Walker takes care of it. And it, it, doesn't, it, does, it doesn't have any bearing on us. It doesn't make us any more religious not to eat it. If we wouldn't eat it or we do eat it, it's not an issue. The, the only time it becomes an issue is if there could be an entire insect in, the pro, in what we're eating which you'd have in a strawberry and a broccoli or these kind of things like that. But something with these processed foods that might have a little bit of residues in there, that's not really an issue for us. I saw on a little video that someone was sending around about a company, and they sent it to me. Whoever it was put it, either put it out or just saw it, you know, maybe they thought it was important for me to see. It was uh, about one particular company, two products. They were uh, spices. You might have seen this video. Spices from one particular company, and you see the name of the company. You see the spices. It's a firm company. And you see the spices, and they pour them out. And, they, and the little kid identifies all of the bugs are there, which obviously this is like a setup in the worst way. So either they don't hate somebody hates that company or whatever it is, Maybe it really happened, but it's not strange. It could happen to anybody, just like who has not discovered some insects in their pasta once, sometime, who has never discovered insects in their flowers sometime. This is real world. Of course it's going to happen. You're not eating plastic. You're eating food. The animals and bugs and everything, they also eat that food. So it's not so strange. And I, I, right away, whoever sent it to me, they did, of course, you don't see a name on anything today anymore. You never know who sent it to you. I, 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 write, I wrote back, I am not impressed. You know, who, first of all, the container was open. So I don't know. Who, and maybe you want to burn this company. I don't know. If you wanted me to see that there's a problem, don't give me away names of the companies. If you want to, don't have little kids pointing out the bug. Oh, there's one. No, no. This is this is a setup. I, I I believe it was a setup, and I I, I wouldn't fall for it in the, in the least. And I don't wouldn't, wouldn't mention to you the name of the product. I wouldn't even mention the type of product. 
because it's not it's not fair. We we we, we have to follow halacha when we eat. We don't have to become crazy. I was going to uh, share with you another one a thing or two here. Um, there's an interesting product that came out. I, I don't understand it. I suppose I'm not uh, up to date, but Kerem Wine came out with a new product. Ready for this? Well, you must have been waiting for it your whole life. You can now get wine in a can. Like you get a can of, of soda, you can now buy wine in a can. This is uh, considered to be a, a, new, a, a new idea. Um, that's, it's, a, it's a kosher wine first, and, it, and there seems other, some other companies in the secular world and the non-kosher wine companies are doing that. I don't understand it. It seems to me that our sights should be a little higher in, in other areas and not whether the wine is in this kind of container or that kind of container. We want kashras. We want, we want availability. We want the different sizes. We want the different, uh, you know, kashras issues, you know, and tastes. And but we're going to worry about whether it's in a can or it's in a bottle. It wasn't good all these years in a bottle. But that's it. That's what, that's what drives the market. And, and we have to realize that maybe we have to slow back on some of these innovations. Not that I don't like Ketam. I don't go to Ketam wine. It's basically what I drink. But, it's just, but, I don't, uh, but I don't need to have it in a can or not in a can. I'm going to share with you a little bit of this article in the time that we have remaining. I, I'm working on it. And uh, I, I would, if you have a pen... You, you'll find it valuable, because I'm going to read to you some names, some of them you never heard before in your life, and you will never see them, and you don't care about them. But if I do say one that you ever heard of or ever think about, you should write it down. We're going to go through cheeses that are the need to be wait, you need to wait after them before you eat meat. Why am I bringing it out now? Because I just got it from Roy Gordimer. You go to the website from the OU, it says 2017, but it was just updated. They didn't even change the date on it yet. So I'm going to give you a little bit. You can go to the OU website, OU.org, and you could type in hard cheese, and one of the choices will come up, uh, what I'm going to tell you in a minute. And you'll get the whole thing there. But I'm telling you orally, so if you want to scribble down a name or two, it will be helpful to you. First, I want to share with you some thoughts that the OU put out on the topic of hard cheese. People ask why hard cheese is so expensive. It's a good question. You know, you can buy this kind of soft cheese cheaply. All of a sudden, hard cheese costs, you know, several times the price at least. So basically, the OU answers the following. Because they have to send a field representative, what they call an RFR, or a field representative, very often they have to go to another country because a lot of it's produced in other countries. They go to far-flung places, and that, and that costs money. Also, nearly all the domestic and European hard cheese plants are not kosher, and they're only doing a special run for kosher. So when the rabbinic field representative goes there, he often needs to kosher or to supervise the koshering of each plant before every kosher production. So there's got to be a koshering and a production. 
and it's, and it's time, and it's, and it's hard work, and this can take days to complete, and it's not simple work. And hopefully the man is high qualified and gets paid properly. So we're all putting in for his, uh, for his expenses. Now, I'm going, to, I'm going to read to you our article, which is really basically based on what Rabbi Gordon has said. Nothing uh, so, so, so different from what he said. And then I'm going to read to you the list of the, of the, the cheeses you have to wait. And then after that, I'm going to read to you a few comments from Rabbi Gordimer's whatever time we have left, which were in his original article. The entire thing, except for what I wrote, you can find on uh, the, the website ou.org, and you type in uh, hard cheese, and you look for the article. It doesn't have his name on it, um, but I didn't take out exactly uh, the wording of the article, but it's about waiting the time you have to wait for six hours, etc. I think it's called cheese. Oh, here it is. Cheeses when waiting is required. That's it. You write, you type in cheeses when waiting is required. In fact, I think if you just go to the internet and do that, you'll get it also. Cheeses when waiting is required. And uh, it says, oh, you kosher staff, but it basically Rabbi Gordimer. Okay. Uh, Rabbi Avram Gordimer. Rabbinical coordinator at the OU, an expert in cheese production, has just issued the updated list of cheeses for which we have to wait before eating meat products. To see the entire list, you go to this website. I gave it to you how to do there. According to the Ramah in your Adaya uh, pay test, one needs to wait after eating hard cheeses before eating meat products because hard cheeses, similar to meat, are not digested for a considerable time, and their flavor may remain in your palate for hours. Now, the Ramos says this. The Mechaber doesn't mention the waiting the six hours there, but in, he brings it down in base. Yosef, in any event, it's attributed to the Ramos, but everybody does it. There are various opinions in Halakha as to how long you have to wait after eating hard cheeses, just as there are various times tradition, various times Various, um, I could change that. Various traditions on the time that you have to wait after meat before consuming dairy. There are legitimate sources for waiting, and these are all these are legitimate. I, I, if I had time, I'd go through it. Maybe I will at the end, just a few minutes, but I don't think I'll have time. There's a legitimate reason for waiting one hour, which basically the Dutch do that. Uh, three hours, that's the German Jews. Into the sixth hour, some have that minute, which is that you go five hours in a couple of minutes, for, or some say five and a half hours, and that, by the way, Rebarman Cutlass, that's all held five and a half hours, or the full six hours, which is what most Jews do. You wait the full six hours. Now, this is, I'm not going into it completely, but I'll give you one line, and that is that according to the Rambam, you need the six hours. But the Rambam said it's in the sixth hour. So it's the sixth hour, it says. So therefore, it, did he mean complete or not complete? So that's the discussion. From the five hours and a couple of minutes, the five and a half hours, or the six hours, it seems to be, he says, and it, it, the, the wording is a little unclear, and that's why these three traditions came up. Um, but as far as the one hour, 
that is based on the Zohar. And the three hours, nobody really has a, a, a reason, no one really knows exactly where that three hours comes from. But it's the uh, Yekesh Minig, the German Minig. The Shach in Yeridaya, and, and also in Peites, the Cotton Tazayan, explains that hard cheese, as referenced by Ramosha Isolist the Ramor, means cheese which has aged approximately six months. Some postkim hold that after eating pungent, strong tasting cheeses, one should similarly have to wait before eating meat, regardless of the cheese's age. In other words, even if it didn't take six months, if it has a pungent flavor, you may have to wait uh, the six hours. That's a taz. And we're going to see that we're going to say that the, the OU follows that opinion, and we're going to see a little more about it later. But it's very important to understand that the pungent flavor of a cheese may be a result of the cheese-making process or the additional aging. In other words, it may be the six months that makes the pungent flavor, or it may be just that the way you make the cheese, it gets a pungent flavor. So this is a difference. Some people hold that if it has a pungent flavor in production, then it doesn't need six months. And, but, and if it has six months, maybe it doesn't need pungent flavor. So this is the topic of discussed by Poiskin, whether it needs to have both things, the six months and the pungent flavor or not, or just the six months is already enough, and because anyway six months is going to be aging, is going to produce a pungent flavor, or can you get a pungent flavor in less time than the six months, which is the opinion of the OU. Okay. So that's a very, very important discussion. For these reasons, the OU recommends waiting after eating some cheeses, even though they were not aged for six months. Everything that was aged six months, the OU says to wait six hours. The question is, what about something that wasn't six, that wasn't six months, but it makes, produced a pungent flavor? So the OU says, yes, for that you also should wait between the six hours. If they receive a pungent flavor during the irregular production due to their flavor profiles, which means the way you make it, you, things you mix in, you will find the words pungent cheese in the entries below which have achieved their pungent flavor during the cheese-making process, even though their production was done in considerably less time than six months. So there was less than six months, but because it's going to be pungent, they said you have to wait the six hours. Note, an eggplant parmesan is frequently made with cheeses other than parmesan, even though they call it eggplant parmesan, because that's, that's the name of a product, of a, you know, of a, a food. That's the way it is. It's called it, eggplant parmesan. But people very often don't use parmesan cheese in making it. Many establishments instead use mozzarella as the primary cheese here. And uh, the, uh, the, the mozzarella is not a, is not, not a six-hour cheese. Consumers are advised to inquire when purchasing such foods. Many pizza stores do use Parmesan uh, or other hard cheeses when they're making their pizza in, or in their grated cheeses. 
And you see the grated cheeses are very often a Parmesan or something like that. Inquire when you shop. That's the end of my article. That's the little introduction. Now we're going to meet you name these different berries. I will count them to the best of my ability, which is limited, because this is, this is, uh, these are Italian names, and I can only do so well. I had, my, my Italian is, is lacking. Um, just spent too long in yeshiva. I didn't get a chance to go to Italy. But, it's, but the, you can scribble down anyone you've ever heard of in your life. Remember, these are OU cheeses, and we're not, we're not giving you the name of the company, but talking the name of the, of the, the type of cheese. A Penzella Extra, Swiss made, that was six months. A Penzella Surchoi, Swiss made, that, that's up to usually around six months. Asiago D'Alevo Mezzano, aged. Now this aging of them, this one I just pronounced, varies very widely. So if you ever had that product, you should check it out and find out what, how long it was aged. Asiago Dalavo, Dalevo, Vecchio, that was over 18 months. Asiago Dalevo, Vecchio, that's from 9 to 18 months. Now, here's one of the, here are two that have the pungent cheese taste. Blue cheese, B-L-E-U, that's very important because there's a lot of people that make blue, and it's only from two to four and a half months, but the OU says you have to wait six hours. Brick, which is also pungent cheese, yeah, it only makes three months to make, but the OU says you have to wait. Cabra, Spanish goat cheese, also a pungent cheese. Uh, next, ca Casio Cavallo, which is aged well beyond six months. Casio Cavallo, semi-aged. It only lasts up till six months, but six months sometimes hits. Cassiata alpina. It takes up to a year to make that. Cheddar, medium, sharp, aged, any of these. Because they, believe it or not, cheddar cheese can be aged up to seven years. So with cheddar is real. It's real stuff. Chevra goat cheese, aged. If the label says aged, or it states a specific cheese variety, then you should be worried about it. I go cheese. Um, next, uh, a mental. That's a that's like a Swiss that's like a Swiss cheese. A mental. It's a Swiss cheese and, and from Switzerland, six to fourteen months. Fiora Sardo. That's four to eight months. Gruyere which is 5 to 12 months. Havati, aged, was one year. Iberico, aged, six months to two years. Cascavala, aged. The aging in that thing varies considerably. You have to check and find out whether, how long it was aged on the, on the packaging. Manchego Corrado five, is three to six months. Manchego Viejo is one year. Viejo, probably. Marble cheese, aged. Again, this is one that takes a lot of different varieties of aging, and you check it out on the package. Montazio, aged, 10 months. Montazio, semi-aged, that's from 5 to 9 months. 
Monterey Jack in the foreign market, meaning that made here in America, they may do some kind of thing called Monterey Jack and knock it off in 30 days or less. I don't know. But the foreign market is aged from six months to a year. Monterey Jack dry is seven to ten months. Parmesan, this is like a given one. You know, these are ones that we, we, one of those that you do know. Mental, E-M-M-E-N-T-A-L, and the, the Parmesan, and the, um, the, was the other one on the previous page mentioned before, blue cheese, B-L-E-U, um, these are some of them, uh, cheddar cheese, those are the ones you really have to watch out for. So again, blue, cheddar, the ones that you might see more often, a mental, E-M-M-E-N-T-A-L, and they just have a Swiss cheese, amazing, in Switzerland, and then you have also, we mentioned here, um, the Monterey Jack, that's an interesting uh, problem, again, it's foreign market. And then the Parmesan, it takes 10 to 24 months or more. Pecorino Romano. So the Romano cheese is Pecorino Romano. And Pecorino Sardo, this does six to eight months. Pepper Jack, which says foreign market, again, can be aged six months to a year. Picante Provolone, six to 12 months. Provola di Nebrodi, at least six months. Provolone, picante, 6 to 12 months. Reggianito, 6 months. Romano, the Romano cheese is a very common cheese here also, 5 to 12 months. Speedy picante, so you would think speedy is very fast. It's at least 9 months. The speedy picante. And Stravecchio takes 1 to 3 years. And another one that is very common, whether you know it or not, you can find it in stores, you're eating it, you don't realize it, Tilsit, T-I-L-S-I-T, six months. If it's produced properly, he said that they, they're very often doing it in a more quicker time, but it takes six months if you want to make it properly, Tilsit. So I gave you an idea, if you got it, fine. If you didn't get it, you go to the OU website, OU.org, and you'll be able to see over there this list. Now, there are many, many more mentioned there. I selected only those you have to wait the six hours. They list at least as much that you don't have to wait. But I just wanted you to know what you do have to worry about, not to make confuse you and tell you you do and you don't. Let me at least say it in one way. So I spent a little time figuring it out, and I gave you that. Now, let me share with you uh, an interesting question. Again, we're working with the OU policy. You ask me, I might come out with a different answer because my Rebbe, Rav Hashem and Zatzal, taught us that we are concerned with the, with, with the aging that goes on in the packaging. And he didn't distinguish between certain types, certain aging, certain products. He didn't get lost in that. He said that aging in the packaging counts. What was interesting is, over the years, so many people told me they didn't believe that at all. And now, in the first time, I'm really seeing that the OU is telling you the same thing, that the, there's aging going on in the packaging. Once it's packaged already, you're still getting aging process. It's very, very interesting. Anyway, this is a Shila that the OU has, and it was on one of their websites. It says, the OU certifies crackers and popcorn with Parmesan seasoning. Parmesan. I said Parmesan, you've got to wait six hours. Since Parmesan is a hard cheese, 
that requires a person to wait six hours before eating meat, do I similarly need to wait six hours after eating these snacks before eating meat? It's a popcorn with a Parmesan seasoning. Seasoning, not the, you don't have a whole thing of, uh, you know, Parmesan cheese. It's seasoning. So this is what the OU answered. And again, a, a thing like this, you'd have to ask your own rub. Everyone should, I'm just bringing you down because the question is interesting. The answer is interesting, but it's an OU sock, and anyone can ask their own rub. If the seasoning is primarily made from Parmesan cheese, then one should wait six hours, or whatever your custom is, you know, one of the other numbers I mentioned earlier. However, cheese seasoning are often made with enzyme-modified cheese, E-M-C. You hear that? Enzyme-modified cheese, okay, which is mixed and essentially diluted with other bulkier ingredients, such as whey or types of cheeses that are blander, then they're not, they're not pungent like the, uh, like the Parmesan is, and they're only in powders. So you, they mix it all together. In volume, the other ingredients, in other words, not the Parmesan, can constitute the majority of the seasoning, even though it's called Parmesan seasoning. But you're not to know that it's going to have a little ting from the Parmesan, otherwise you wouldn't call Parmesan seasoning because it's something in you. You use it as an ingredient. It has to have a little flavor towards the, the flavor of the Parmesan, I guess. Now, the Yad Yehuda Paskins, that a hard cheese which is blended into other food and softened through cooking does not necessitate waiting six hours. Similarly, in the case of enzyme-modified cheese, Rav Shachter, that's Rav Melis Shachter from the, I'm sorry, Rav Herschel Shachter, that's Rav Herschel Shachter from the OU and from the Yeshiva University. So he poskins that since it is actually a soft cheese, albeit with a very strong flavor, once it's diluted to become a fraction of the seasoning, one would not have to wait after eating it. So, in other words, the OU poskins, you don't wait six hours after the Parmesan seasoning. You might discuss it with somebody else and they come up with a different answer. I cannot tell you. Uh, in a little bit of time remaining, I very much want to share with you a few notes that Rabbi Gordimer has, which are in his article, and I'm not publishing it just because I don't want to go into this heavier stuff. And uh, if I don't have time to finish them, so I recommend everybody listen, look them up because there are six, I'm sorry, five uh, Six very important things that I want to bring up. Number one, the Shach uh, holds that the six-month age is an approximation. The OU is postgim, thus maintained that cheese aged within the general range of this period necessitate waiting. So let's say it might end up being five months. So it says, you know, let's say three to five months. So then maybe it's going to still hit it. So he, in other words, the... And we're not saying it's all got to do with six months alone. Again, that's just the plain aging before it sits in the it sits in the packaging, in the uh, distributors, in the in the, in the in the manufacturer's plant, and then to the distributor, from the distributor to the store, from the store to your house, to your refrigerator. So there's going on a few months actually in addition. So if, that's how we always learned it uh, from my rebbe, Zatzal, that if it's three four months in production. 
but you have to figure that you're hitting the six months by the time you actually eat it, which is very, very possible. American cheese is not a true variety of cheese. It's typically made of non-aged cheddar that is melted and mixed with additives and then is solidified and molded. American cheese is the cheese industry's equivalent of a hot dog. Cheese experts refer to American cheese as plastic, so it's not even an issue. Asiago, Delevo, Mizano, Fontina, Cascaval, and marble cheese vary widely in terms of age, and unlike the case with most cheeses in the list, there, are, there exists no specific names or descriptive titles that denote the ages of these cheeses. So in other words, you could study the label, you can chant at the company, but some of these cheeses that I just mentioned, there's no way to find, he can't make a list, he can't put them down. Although goat and sheep milk feta can be aged in brine for up to six months, which then technically would be an issue, the effects of aging cheese in brine are quite different than aging trees in, uh, cheese in dry environments, the latter of which is the predominant method of aging cheese. Cheese which ages or ripens in technical cheese-making terminology in dry environments loses moisture, gains firmness, thereby creating a hard cheese for the purpose of the waiting before consuming meat. But brine appears to largely prevent the textural aging from occurring. So you may have the six months, but you have a counterbalance of the, of the liquid there. So that's why he left that out. Some foods that officially contain very aged cheeses are often made with less expensive, fresh, non-aged cheeses. In other words, officially they're calling it Parmesan or something, but they're using something else. Or officially they're calling it a certain kind of level, because he had net levels, right, age, this, and age, that. They might use the word age. They might use certain buzzwords to give you the feeling that you're getting that kind of a quality, when in reality, they're not putting that particular kind of cheese in. And by the way, that's with the Parmesan, uh, you know, eggplant Parmesan, the same kind of thing. People think they're getting the Parmesan. They're not necessarily getting Parmesan at all. So these are things that we as consumers have the full responsibility. The only thing the OU or anybody can give you is a list based upon the facts on the ground where you are at that time. The last point that I want to bring up is that Yad Yehuda, which was a little bit uh, rushed over, and I, I, I want you to hear it totally. It's a Kiddush that not everybody agrees with. The Yad Yehuda comments that one need not wait after eating aged cheese that has been melted as the cheese's brittle texture is lost through melting. So in other words, you may be starting with a hard cheese, but once it has been melted, it no longer is that hard cheese. Many postgim, including those of the OU, rule like the Yad Yehud on this point. And again, including those of the OU, the postgim from the OU are going with the Yad Yehuda that if it melts, it's not longer hard cheese. However, there appears to be a dispute as to which foods the Yad Yehuda comment pertains to. The Yad Yehuda's comment was written in reference to a food that was it's called Tavshel Shalgamina, a part of a food which contains cheese, with the cheese in, in indiscernibly melted into the food. 
Many poskim therefore maintain that the uh, Yehuda's approach pertains only to foods which were into which aged cheeses melted as an unnoticeable component, i.e., the cheese is not the end. You can't see the cheese. The OU adopts this approach. Again, it would be that it was a graded thing or something and falls in in there. And you, and when, the, when you see the presentation, you cannot identify the cheese. However, the logic of the Yad Yehuda, that aged cheese, which is melted, loses its brittle texture and therefore should be treated like non-aged cheese, would appear to apply to any melted aged cheese, even if the cheese stands alone. Some postgim thus seem to apply the approach of the Yad Yehuda to any melted cheese. And, and see, uh, so the, he brings a number of sources for that. So this Yad Yehuda is a, is a um, question that exists in all of the Rabbanim Paskin this way or that way in regards to the Yad Yehuda. It's worth, if you have a chance, to get a hold of this on the website of the OU.org. If not, um, you know, it's... Uh, if you need it and you can't find it any other way, you can always email me. I'm going to uh, give you my, my contact information again uh, for any questions or if you'd like to get the Conscious Magazine. Our new issue is coming out very soon, uh, the Conscious Magazine, and we also have the new Kosher Supervision Guide coming out in three months. So uh, if you want to get on board with us, you'll be able to get all that. Uh, our, our contact information is 718-336. 8544 or 732-534-9363. And again, 732-534-9363 uh, or 718-338. Uh, uh, one second. 718-I'm <laughs> uh, <laughs> forgetting my own number now. Uh, the... Uh, you can, you can, yeah, the 718-336-8544. We don't live in Brooklyn anymore, so something to get the Brooklyn number. And you can meet us also online at Kashrus, K-A-S-H-R-U-S, at AOL.com. And you can also go see us on com. We have a lot of things up there on com. Until next week, this is your host, Rabbi Yosef Wickler, editor of Kashrus Magazine for Kashrus on the Air. And now, live from Israel, the world's largest Jewish music program. Presenter broadcaster, Asher Greiber. וזה הקיץ הגיע לגמרי, הסבתות אחרי חג שבועות מחליפות את כל הבגדים בארון מבגדים של חורף ובגדים של קיץ, תתכוננו, מחר גם שרה, אנחנו כאן כדי לקרב ולצלם לכם את מזג האוויר שלמרות שאתם מתלוננים היום אולי, בואו נודה, נכון? שלום לכם, ברוכים הבאים בנימה אופטימית זו לתוכנית המוזיקה היהודית הגדולה בעולם, The Beat of the Day, נאמר שלום לכלל הצוותים שמעבירים את קולנו עליכם, אז בקול חי נמצא ישי נוימן, בדיגיטל קול חי מיוזיק נמצא יעקב בלוך, דוד לוין וג'אוטה יואו בניו יורק, קטי קלר חיפה מיוהנסבורג, דרור גלברמן, טוקר פן, דורון לאסה, ערוץ 2000, וארי גוטל בישראל אחת. כאן מול פני בקצב היום המפוארים. ישראל שלמה אזולאי, עורך ומפיק את התוכנית, אברהם סמיילי, יצחקוב על הביצוע הטכני, אשר גרייבר, it's me, אנחנו מתחילים. 
את התוכנית עם יעקב שוויקי, מאמין בניסים, כמה אנחנו צריכים להאמין בניסים, ונקווה שהקורונה כבר תהיה מאחורינו. מזכיר לכם את מספר הוואטסאפ שלנו, שהוא סופג הכל, את כל ההודעות הקוליות שלכם. תקליטו לי, אני מנגן כל בקשות השירים, 058 600 1025. לפעמים מרגישים שהחיים כל כך קשים, מה יהיה עוד יום עוד שנה? אבל אני מחייך, לא דואג להמשך, כי יש לי, יש לי אמונה. אני של עמרם אדר, אין עוד מלבדו. 
אין עוד מלבדו בקשה מצוינת שלכם, אתם מפציצים אותי בוואטסאפ שלנו כאמור, 058-610-25. אם אתם רוצים קצב, אנחנו בקצב, אז הנה זה בא, יוני זי, נצח. Yeah. 
היום יעקב שוטקי אמרה מדע יוני זה די זמרי עולם מה עם הזמרים הישראלים מיד נהיה גם איתם לאחר הפרסומות והכל תלוי אך ורק בבקשות שלכם ב-058-610-25 זה מספר הוואטסאפ שלנו הודעות קוליות שלכם בלבד כמו שאתם שומעים את הקול הערב שלי יש אומרים או המציק יש אומרים אני גם רוצה לשמוע את הקול הערב שלכם אז אתם עושים את זה ב-058-610-25 קפה קצר וחזרתי תוכנית המוסיקה היהודית הגדולה בעולם. The Beat of the Day. All the programs are available on our website at www.israel1.fm. לבקשות השירים בתוכנית המוסיקה היהודית הגדולה בעולם, חייגו עכשיו לתיבה הקולית של בקצב היום, 077-222-7777. You request, we broadcast. To make your request, dial בקצב היום, the beat of the day, voice box 718-770-3777. 718-770-3777. To request songs from Johannesburg, Call the Beat of the Day voicemail at 10-500-4233. That's 10-500-4233. לבקשות שירים בתוכנית בקצב היום, חייגו ל-039-039-039, הקישו אחת ואחר כך שתיים, או שילחו הודעות קוליות בוואטסאפ למספר 058-610-25. בקצב היום, תוכנית המוזיקה היהודית הגדולה בעולם, חזרנו הבוקר כשהתעוררתי ואמרתי את מודה אני לפניך, מלכי וקיים, שהחזרת בי את נשמתי בחמלה רבה ומנתך. ריחמתי על אותם אלו שלא יכולים לומר את זה, אלו שלא זכו להיות יהודים. אנחנו זכינו להיות יהודים. יוסף יוקמפשר, 
והוא גם צוחק עליי בהתחלה, שימו אוזן. You don't have to be breathless to be the simcha. But you gotta be the simcha to be breathless. No, you don't have to be breathless to be the simcha. But you gotta be the simcha to be a Shut up, man. 